Well, it is always uh, incredibly special to be back in Santa Clarita, and uh, I just want to say that uh, we are really, really blessed to be able to have three homes. We have a uh, home here in Santa Clarita, and uh, we have a home in Dallas, and uh, by the grace of God, we have a home in heaven. So uh, I believe in real estate. I'm pro-real estate. And uh, I especially want to say just uh, from the bottom of our hearts, uh, thank you for how warmly uh, you always make us feel received when we come back to be uh, in our second home here. And uh, it's thrilling to come back and see how the church changes and grows and matures. Uh, wow, I thought your worship team uh, led us in a phenomenal way today. And... Uh, Yeah, don't take them for granted. They did a great job. And, uh, you know, to be able to walk in and finally get to meet Lalette, uh, you know, I feel a little bit like the guy in the temple when he saw Jesus and said, I can die now. Uh, Take me home, Lord. Not quite, but but pretty close. And, uh, wow, I'm just so thrilled for them. Bruce, uh, Bruce, uh, congratulations. And Lalette, too, we're, we're thrilled for you both. And uh, we can't wait to have Ron and Cheryl out to uh, Dallas. We've just been trying to figure out a date that works in their busy schedule, but uh, I think Ron is holding out trying to uh, see if the Cowboys improve and uh, come out during one of the Sundays. But I told them, just come, brother. You're going to be waiting a long, long time. But uh, we, we love you and them incredibly dearly, so thank you for, again, your love and your warm embrace. Hey, I'm excited about what uh, I get to share with you today. It's, uh, it's a sermon I already gave last fall in Dallas, and it's called Choosing Gratitude. The year was 1860. The setting was in the dark, early morning hours of a very frigid fall day and what became a fall night and a ferocious storm on Lake Michigan. What was about to unfold has been called one of the greatest marine horrors in all of U.S. history. In those dark morning hours on that raging sea of Lake Michigan, the Lady Elgin, a uh, wooden steamship, sank in those choppy waters on that night. She had been accidentally rammed by another vessel in that storm at a, just after midnight. And uh, sadly, that ship that rammed her and the Lady Elgin thought everything would be okay. And so the other ship went on its way. You thought the Titanic sank fast. The Lady Elgin disintegrated in 20 minutes of the estimated 700 men, women, and children on board, 
Only 160 would miraculously survive. It is estimated that as the ship disintegrated, some 300 and 400 survivors that were left were thrown into the choppy waters in some 40-foot seas. And before morning would ever arrive, most would, of course, die of drowning and the rest of hypothermia. When day finally broke, a small handful of survivors found themselves helplessly adrift near the shore of Evanston, Illinois, a very cliff-strewn area on Lake Michigan. You see, they were adrift near the shoreline, but because of the towering cliffs and the jagged rocks at its base, most would only survive long enough to meet their fates on that shoreline. We are told by accounts that local residents and farmers awoke that morning to the horrors of welling men and women adrift near that shoreline. As you can imagine, they urgently set out to form a rescue party. And among those recruited, we're told, was a seminary student at Northwestern University nearby. His name was Edward Spencer. He was a great swimmer, probably much like our new sister-to-be here. And they actually tied a rope, a long, long rope around his waist, and he bravely, in those early morning dawn hours, set out to rescue as many survivors as he could pulling victim after victim from those jagged rocks. Seeing Edward's deteriorating condition, we are told that many tried to stop him, but he refused and went back out there time after time after time again. Finally, he became so delirious that after saving 17 people, He just collapsed under utter exhaustion and couldn't go back out again. It is reported that he laid in the infirmary all that night and repeated over and over again, Did I do my best, fellows? Have I done my best? You know what's really interesting about this story? Spencer had been so badly injured in those 17 rescues from the jagged rocks, the floating debris, that he actually spent the rest of his life, and he was only in his young 20s at the time, he spent the rest of his life confined to a wheelchair. He had, in fact, to abandon his passion, his dream of being in the ministry. Each year on the anniversary of the disaster, his valor would often be recalled in newspaper accounts and other tributes. 
But it says a lot that it would be almost 50 years later before he could even go back to the scene of that tragedy and face that horrible night and morning. When he did go back some 50 years later, on the anniversary, he was asked by a reporter what he recalled the most about that tragic event. And his shocking reply haunts me to this day. When asked what he recalled the most about that tragic event, he said only this, of the 17 people I helped save, not one of them ever came back and even said thank you. Though he undoubtedly did not risk his life in order to earn their gratitude, you really just have to ask yourself, was that really too much to expect? You know, perhaps uh, on a similar note, you and I now come into the story. Because it's a story that God records for us through His Spirit in the Gospels that no doubt He wanted us to wrestle with and us to examine our own life by and our own heart by. Perhaps the most uh, graphic illustration that we have of ingratitude you see in the Bible is Jesus' healing of the ten Lepers. In Luke 17, let me refamiliarize yourself with a well-known story. In Luke 17, in verse 11, I'll be reading from the Good News translation. It says, as Jesus made his way to Jerusalem, he went along the border between Samaria and Galilee. He was going into a village where he was met by ten men suffering from a dreaded skin disease. They stood at a distance and shouted, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. Jesus saw them and said to them, Go and let the priests examine you. On their way... They were made clean. When one of them saw that he was healed, he came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself to the ground at Jesus' feet, and he thanked him. And the Bible wants us to know that this man was a Samaritan. Well, Jesus, upon seeing that, spoke up. And he said, there were ten who were healed. Where are the other nine? Why is this foreigner the only one who came back to give thanks to God? And Jesus said to him, 
Get up and go. Your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. You know, I can't help but to think uh, that a lot like those pulled by Edward Spencer to safety, gratitude, gratitude remained really hard to come by that day. And you know what I also believe? I really believe that gratitude is even harder in many ways, to come by in our day today. You know, you you think about all the reasons why that, you know, these people didn't come back, these lepers, and thank Jesus for literally radically changing their course on life. And, you know, no doubt uh, they had reasons like we have reasons to be short on thanks or at least expressing it. You know, some were probably just in a understanding, uh, a rush to get home, and boy, they couldn't wait to tell their family. Some were probably so caught up in a state of uh, just incredible joy that, uh, you know, that they, they couldn't even contain themselves. You know, I think there might have been some who even went to look for Jesus later, You know, they were putting off what they needed to do. Can any of you relate to that? And, uh, you know, the window sadly had closed on finding Jesus. He had moved on. You see, what I want you to see from the ten lepers is that ingratitude is not always an callous, who cares, shrugging of the shoulders. You see, most times it's just Fourth or fifth on our list of things to do, and we never quite get around to expressing it. But you know, for one of those leopards healed, gratitude remained his first and most immediate reaction to grace. Man, he didn't care who hurt him. He didn't care how dusty the ground was that he threw himself on before Jesus. He didn't even care that he was the only one and where did all the others go? He didn't care that he might look foolish to onlookers. He just knew there was nothing more important than thanking Jesus for the grace in his life. You know, I can't help but to notice how quiet it gets in here when you look at a convicting passage like this. And uh, I just want to say that, you know, the sad reality that I think we really need to wrestle with is, is how grateful really are we in our life? I think if I, if I said, you know, are there people in here that you are right now really grateful for? There's no doubt you would say absolutely most of you. But then I would ask you, do they really 
know it. What have you done recently to really even express it? How about your relationship with God? How, how are your prayers really when you go before God? Because a grateful person has very thankful prayers. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. But the reason I, I really am, am so impressing this on us is because, you know, uh, I embarked on a study last fall just on gratitude in my life. And I embarked on that study and I was amazed at how much I needed to grow in this most important area of my spiritual life. Do you know that ingratitude is really the tap root, the big center tap root, out of which grows a host of so many other sins? You know, we think pride is really that taproot. I put before you, I'm convinced it's ingratitude. Ingratitude leads to pride. Ingratitude is the opposite of humility. You know, if we don't put the axe to the root of ingratitude, it's been said that Satan truly has a vacant lot in our heart upon which to set up his little shops of horror, with all kinds of horrors of our hearts. Now, I bet you think, okay, okay, you're over-expressing this. You're, you're putting too much emphasis on it. Well, you know, have you ever thought about Romans 1 in this context? And I bet you probably haven't, because I never did. You know, Romans 1 is one of the most powerful chapters in the New Testament. You know, when uh, when you can open a chapter with the words, the wrath of God, that's a, that, that's a pretty powerful passage about to unfold. And, uh, you know, the wrath of God, it says, is being revealed against sinful humanity. And then it lists all different kinds of manners of unrighteousness. And how it's expressed. You know, goes into great detail talking about the sin of homosexual perversion. Boy, I wonder how Romans 1 plays today in California and in America. It talks about how we will get to the point, if we're not careful, of acceptance and approval of that kind of culture. It goes on to say in verse 29, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips and slanders, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. Boy, what a statement on our society today. They disobey their parents. Teens, can you even believe that one's in there? They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous 
decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve, approve of those who practice them. You say, wow, a more extensive list of wickedness and sin you won't find practically anywhere in Scripture. But what is really, I put before you, the beginning point? What starts mankind down this road of wickedness and sinfulness? What starts civilizations down this path towards more serious sin? And I put before you that the answer is simply found even above verse 29 in verse 21 when it says simply this, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. You see, there really is no and to what can grow out of the root of ingratitude. Romans 1 tells us some of the things. And you know, I just want you to see this morning what I've had to come to grips with in my life, and that is there are two types of people in life. There are grateful people, and there are ungrateful people. There are those who whine, and there are those who worship. You will, of course, either be thankful or unthankful. You will either recognize a blessing in your life when it comes, or you will callously overlook it. You will either acknowledge a kindness, or you will mindlessly Forget to appreciate it. You decide. And that's really the good news here is that we can decide in our life to choose gratitude. And so let me uh, spend the rest of my limited time up here showing you what I believe are three key ways that we can grow in our gratitude. Amen? I mean, hopefully I got your attention a little bit that that gratitude is not the default setting in our life. Ingratitude is. And it's not just, you know, a, a nice thing that we need to work on to be more grateful. It is crucial to how we do spiritually and to what our righteousness will really give forth fruit in our life. And so what are the keys to growing in this godlike quality of gratitude? Well, I believe the very first, number one, is considering Jesus himself. I mean, really, isn't that the key to everything in our spiritual life? Jesus? One of my favorite songs that I play often in the morning is, Give Me Jesus. I love that song, and it changes my spirit when I get up in the morning if I need to refocus in my golden hour in the morning. 
You know, we uh, we get a lot of different answers in here, I'm convinced, if I asked you. Give me some qualities of Jesus. And no doubt, I would hear out there, humility. I would hear someone else say, self-control. I bet someone would say, love. But I really wonder how many would say, gratitude. Gratitude. You know, it's a quality of Jesus that if you're not very observant, you're probably going to really overlook in the Gospels. His spirit of gratitude. Yet I just want you to really go back afresh and look at the Gospels, and what you're going to see, guys, is that it just screams out all over the place in the Gospels. Jesus' spirit of gratitude towards his Father. You know, let me just help you a little bit. Jesus never once complained. That's a real sign he had gratitude. He never took a blessing of God for granted. Run through his prayers and you'll be surprised at the prominence thanksgiving holds in them. He continually took time to thank his father. Whether it's when the 72 return at mealtimes, even when he's feeding 5,000 and 4,000. You know, you try feeding 5,000 people and see if you aren't a little frazzled. Even at the tomb of Lazarus, before God even answers his prayer, he's thanking God for answering it. And there's a real sign of gratitude. You're thanking God for answers to prayers that haven't even come yet. And I'll tell you, if you really want to understand the depth of Jesus' gratitude, just look at his last 24 hours on earth, his suffering, his death. And he paused three times during the Passover, just the Passover meal, to give thanks. At his most stressful, darkest hour. You know, when he even took the cup, that awful symbol of things so near and so dreaded, he pauses to give thanks for it. You see, the first way we're going to grow in the essential quality of gratitude is to, as I said here, consider Jesus I mean, really, how much do you consider Jesus as you go through your day? I mean, you need to learn what kind of person he is that you say you trust, you love, that you want to serve and follow. You need to soak in his character. Saturate your soul with his ways. Watch him. Listen to him. Stand in awe of him. Let him just overwhelm you with the way he is. You know, many of you know that we have one of the cutest little granddaughters. I am having a blast with her, teaching her how to wave. I've been working on blowing kisses. She's trying. She doesn't quite have that down yet. 
And I can't take total credit for the way, but what I can take some credit for is playing with her tongue. (laughs) Not sure the parents are excited about that, but it, it is amazing how she just focuses in on us, and she is so great at imitating And you know, when Jesus said we need to become like little children and we need to imitate their heart, I think he's talking about really we need to have their spirit of of soaking it in and imitating those who we look up to. And that applies spiritually and it certainly applies to Jesus. And so gratitude can best be learned by imitating Jesus and considering him. Point number two, another step to growing in gratitude is Never forget that your worst day is someone else's fairy tale. Think about that. I don't care what your absolute worst day is. It may be the day that you learn you have cancer. And it's pretty serious. You know, I had a day like that, as many of you know, last year. And what I quickly came to realize is, look at where I'm sitting as I'm getting this news, and look at the treatment and the medical team and the options and the health care that is available to me. And that's a side of the fact that I walk with God, the great physician, so I can go through the valley of the shadow of death. Towsley Canyon at night and fear no panthers, no evil. I have a family, I have a spouse, I have a church family that holds up my arms. And so I just came to realize that my worst day was most of the rest of the world's fairy tale to have. Just understand that if you are an average Westerner, and as I look at Santa Clarita, we're above average here, okay? But if you were just an average Westerner, do you realize right now that 99.4% of the world has less to live on than you do? The average size of your home today is 2,300 square feet in America, our homes. Do you know in World War II it was 1,100 square feet? They've almost doubled since World War II the size of our homes. I throw real estate in whenever I can. Do you know your life expectancy, your life expectancy has doubled in the last century? If you live in America. In contrast to a land of plenty where we have so few wants, I think about Paul sitting in prison from the bowels of a Roman dungeon, probably waiting, expecting to be beheaded, deprived of everything but the bare necessities of life, And he wrote what we have is one of the greatest thank you epistles in the Bible, the book of Philippians. 
I don't know the last time you have been pinned a thank you note. That was his thank you note. And he writes to the church, he says, I have plenty. I have all that I need. What do you mean? His friends had largely abandoned him. His enemies were numerous. Whatever creature comforts he had enjoyed at one time were far and away probably destroyed. He was stripped bare of everything except mere existence. And yet he says, I have plenty. I have all that I need. wonder what my epistle would have been writing in a jail in Rome at that time. wonder what yours would have sounded like. You see, the difference between full and empty is not usually between being rich and poor or having cupboards bursting at the seams or being like our college students and having ramen noodles and soup cans. You see, the real difference between being full and empty is gratitude. Gratitude. And, you know, I'll just say this. I'll tell you not to compare yourself with others. But we all will. And so when you're tempted to compare yourself with others, compare yourself with people who have a whole lot less than you do. And you'll find that won't take you very long to find. And then realize that your worst day is most of the world's fairy tale day. And then finally, number three, I found the thing that helps my gratitude more than anything is just working it out in prayer. You know, I just believe the longer that I'm a disciple that God is always up to something. And sometimes that's all I can tell people when they come up to me and they say, hey, guess what? And they share some tragic news. Of course, you want to say, wow, I'll pray for you and I'm sorry. And I've learned many times I just stop right there, even in the fellowship, and I pray right there with them. So I don't forget. But the one thing I always try to tell them is, well, I can only say this, God is up to something. And later on, we'll understand why this is happening. You know, Jesus told us that if we would just listen to his grateful heart in John 5 and verse 17, when Jesus tells us, my father is always working. And so am I. And he's always at work. And so just understand that, that in our life, we really need to have times when we have to work things out. And the only way we can work them out is to go and pray. You know, sometimes you just need to tell your spouse, hey, let me take the kids right now. You go and pray. Just leave the condo, leave the house, go pray. I'll handle things here. You see, we try to work things out too much by whining and complaining and find someone to grumble with. I think about, uh, you know, so many times I needed to go and work things out with prayer, and I'm, I'm reminded of a great pillar in the faith, a guy named Charles Spurgeon. 
Charles Spurgeon, you may have read many of his writings, he suffered from a painful chronic illness. He suffered publicly from slander and ridicule. He suffered mightily with a dark level of depression that at times would roar back, he says, at the worst possible times. Yet he was, to many people, a spiritual pillar. You know, I believe the reason why is because he grew to be thankful for his suffering rather than to allow it to debilitate him. This is what he said in a sermon once. Listen to these words. He says, I think that health is the greatest blessing that God ever sends us, except for sickness, which is far better. I would give anything, anything to be perfectly healthy, he said. But if I had to go over my time again, I could not get on without those sick beds and those bitter pains and those weary, sleepless nights. Oh, the blessedness that comes to us through smarting if we are ministers and helpers of others. You know, I've always heard all my life, if you have your health, you have everything. It's not what he says. He says, man, I wish I had my health, but the only thing I could be more grateful for that I am so lucky to have is my sickness. Because of what my sickness can produce if I walk with God. You know, it's a passage that's pretty worn in our circles, but let me close out my thoughts with Philippians 4 in verse 4. When Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evidence to all, the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You know, God has taught me a lot of things last year. I think one of them was not to be anxious. Do you realize how anxious we are in life? You know, right now, I don't think I have any cancer in my body. But every three months, I get a PSA test for the next five years. And they have me, as I said before, on a very short leash. What can I do about that other than to not let it steal the joy of the moment and to live life to the full and to be so grateful that God loves me so much that he constantly reminds me this world is not my home.
You know, I hate to say it, I think God loves me more than he loves a lot of you. Because he, he gave me cancer. And he is keeping me real, real close. Of course I jest. But I, I tend to look at it as, wow, don't, don't uh, resent cancer as an intruder, as James 1 says. Welcome it as a friend. What a great friend. I don't know what you allow to steal your joy and your gratitude, but I know that when Paul pinned that from that Roman dungeon at the end of his thank you note to the church at Philippi, when he literally had nothing, everything stripped away, he said, don't be anxious, but by prayer and petition, with what? With thanksgiving, present your request to God. I've tried to change how disciples pray in Dallas. And I have told them, just pray a lot of thanksgiving. Start just every prayer, whether you're, you're in want or need, or you, you have a moment in your life where you really need to go before God and ask Him for something, make sure you put a lot of thanksgiving in there as well. Because, you see, you're working out your heart, your anxiousness, your anxiety, your stress in prayer when you go before him with prayer and petitions and thanksgiving. I wanted to close by asking you, what really robs you of your joy? I mean, if you went home this afternoon and you went to flush the toilet and it was clogged because someone clogged it, and it goes over on your nice wooden tile or whatever floor you have, and you're on a two-story and it's going down below, would that kind of ruin your Sunday after a great start like this? I'm sensing it would. If you went outside and someone, even though it was a member of the family of God, backed into your car, would that stress you out a little? Man, if you're driving what Cheryl's driving, I'd be tempted. I don't know what it takes, but I want to leave you with something that I think, for me, hopefully you'll remember. I don't know if you've ever heard of Francis Jane Crosby. We know her better as Fanny Crosby. You know, Fanny may be unfamiliar right now to us, but at the beginning of the 19th century, rather at the end of the 19th century, she was a household name. And I'm going to assure you, you're familiar with her, you just don't know it. You know, at the, uh, at the age of only six weeks, imagine that, a little infant, six weeks old, Fanny Crosby got a bad cold, pretty common for a little infant. And Fanny's uh, mother saw that her eyes were getting infected. And so Fanny's mother took her to her physician. He was out of town, and so a physician's assistant equivalent ministered to her, worried about the eye infection. He put a hot mustard plaster on her eye. It burned her nerves to her eyes. And so this little infant at six weeks of age was blind. 
blinded for the rest of her life. You know, I love our little granddaughter, Elena. I can't imagine Brian and Bree going home after work and trying to look her in the eye, and she does not see what we get to see, she gets to see. The faces, the love, what the face of her mother and dad look like. You know, gets worse as you get older because you can't dress yourself easily. You just getting around in the house is a chore. Uh, you know, try doing laundry when you're blind. You ever thought about that? Well, you don't do laundry anyway, a lot of you. But, hey, try doing laundry when you're blind. I can't relate either. But I can imagine how tough that would be for Connie. You know, we forget, we forget, and here's my point, we, we forget to be thankful for sight. Fanny never forgot to be thankful for blindness. Unable to see at the age of eight years of age, she composed one of her first poems. Not that grammatically correct, but likely more mature than any of us have ever written in our old age. She says at age eight, oh, what a happy child I am. Although I cannot see, I am resolved that in this world contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. This eight-year-old wrote. So we are sigh because I am blind. I cannot, nor I won't. End quote. Do you know, that was her first poem. But blind Fanny Crosby would go on in her spiritual life full of gratitude to write more spiritual songs than anyone ever in history. The most prolific songwriter of gospel songs in history. How many, you say? 8,000. Enough, we're told, to fill 15 songbooks. You see, I told you you knew her. Because you know where if you sang, to God be the glory. That's one of hers. Some of us who really go way back, remember, rescue the perishing. Others of us, blessed assurance. That's hers. She has written so many songs that in order to get her music even published, her publicist had to give her 200, 200 different surnames because no one could believe that one person could write all these songs. And yet she was blind from age six weeks. I'll leave you these thoughts of hers. She says, I could not have written thousands of hymns if I had been hindered by the distraction of seeing all the interesting and beautiful objects 
that would have been presented to my notice. As she would write in her later autobiography, it seemed intended by the blessed providence of God that I should be blind all my life. And I thanked him often for that gift. I thanked him, she writes, for blindness. You see, two kinds of people, grateful and ungrateful. It's the difference between squandering your life and sharing your life. It's the difference between self-pity and to God be the glory. It's the difference between assured bitterness and blessed assurance. You know, this, as she would write in one of her songs, is her story. This is her song. What's your story? What song are you singing right now? Boy, I hope it's not a dirge. Some of us, man, we need a new story. Many of us, we need a new song. A lot of us, we just need to sing a whole lot louder. I can barely hear the gratitude. Whatever the case is, this was her story. And this can be your story and your song too. Choose gratitude. It's a choice and one that would do you well to make. God bless you.